Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Shelby Steele, the Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Principles versus Optics, Race in American Institutions. It was recorded on April 24th, 2018. I would like to talk today, to begin with uh, a phrase, a saying that I've heard recently that I think uh, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, I try to give an attribution. Somebody made it up. I didn't. I wish I had, uh, but I didn't. But the, the statement is that politics are downstream, come downstream from culture. Uh, that culture is the source of, of uh, the sort of political spats and arguments and so forth that we have. And what interests me, what I sort of like to look at today, is the fact that culturally speaking, liberalism has been the establishment in America since the 60s. Uh, conservatism, on the other hand, has been a kind of insurgency, an insurgent movement from the outside in. Uh, obviously, the classic example of that is uh, uh, our, our dear president, Mr. Trump, who ran as an insurgent against a liberal establishment. And uh, against everybody's expectations, he, uh, he prevailed. And so it was a, there was, in that sense, uh, something a little revolutionary about it. But in any case, conservatism seems somehow in our culture to lack the moral authority to be, a, a, to be seen as legitimate in our, in our culture. It's always a little on the defensive, a little, little bit uh, back, a little, you know, afraid to admit that I'm afraid to admit that I listen to Rush, Rush Limbaugh every now and then. Uh, careful who I say that to. Uh, well, why? Uh, I wanted to sort of look at why we seem to be that way. There is, the, I think, a good bit of it has to do with the problem, the great sort of uh, American problem of race, race relations, and the relationship of conservatism to that problem. Uh, there is the feeling that conservatism doesn't really have anything to say about race, that it has no real point to make. Um, and therefore, it's, its sort of moral profile, the moral profile of conservatism in regards to race is that conservatism is indifferent to it. Um, maybe even a little amoral toward it. Well, how did we get here? We got here, I think, I believe, uh, from an event, a kind of, um, probably that's not the best word, probably shift, cultural shift would, would be a better word, uh, that happened in the mid-1960s. Um, and that event was essentially a fall uh, a moral fall, and I think our culture, our, um, you could almost call America a civilization, underwent a profound 
fall, moral fall in the 1960s that we still struggle with and almost everything uh, we do and think today about politics comes from uh, this fall. I think it was um, the most culturally transformative event in all of American history, more so even than the Civil War. The Civil War, one side won, one side lost, but the culture, the underlying uh, society, way of life, was, uh, was not really in contest, uh, except, of course, for the, the matter of slavery. But, but otherwise, America had a cultural unity. Um, today, it does not uh, um, as, as much. Well, what, what, was, uh, what caused the fall? Well, there was the Civil Rights Movement. It had been in the making for a long, long time. Uh, and in 1964, I picked that specific year because that's the year the Civil Rights Bill passed, uh, the Civil Rights Movement actually won its point in America. And more importantly, it represented a kind of apology on the part of America. It was an, here's the Congress of the United States and the president signing a piece of legislation that says um, what we did regard, with regarding race, the way we lived, was morally uh, wrong. Um, there was then the women's movement. Women had not gotten the right to vote until the 1920s. They were second-class citizens. Uh, there was the anti-war movement. Here we were involved in a kind of aggressive militarism in the, in the third world, a uh, little third world country. Um, and um, uh, without, with very little at stake. Uh, and yet we were, uh, we were willing to do that. Uh, there was a youth movement, an anti-war movement that, um, that spread dissonance and dissatisfaction across an entire generation. Um, and there was a sexual revolution, there was a farm worker revolution, uh, there was the beginning of the ecology movement, uh, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. Um, in other words, there was an explosion of accusations against America, an explosion of moral accusations against America. And it constituted uh, it brought to light all of the, the dark side of America and um, uh, for everyone to see. Uh, what is a fall? A fall is, uh, the, of course, the classic example is the Adam and Eve story uh, in the Bible. Uh, and Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden. They live in uh, paradise. Uh, everything is perfect. Every need is met. The fruit is low-hanging. Uh, but God has one rule, uh, and that is that you cannot eat of the forbidden fruit. Well, this overlooked one thing. Adam and Eve were human beings. So what else would they do but eat of the forbidden fruit? <laughs> human, as human beings, we do that. Uh, and this... Uh, upset God and they were expelled from Eden and they were, they literally fell down into reality from paradise, from this dreamy, illusory world 
into the real world that you and I live with, where you know it's a it's a tough struggle and there are contradictions and and uh, we're we we have to contend with forces bigger than ourselves and and so forth. Well, this is the sort of moral fall that America went through uh, in the 60s. And again, the civil rights movement brought this, this to, to the fore because it, it represented slavery. It said, look, this country uh, created the airplane, it created the refrigerator, automobiles, electricity, on and on and on. Great, great country. And yet it enslaved millions of people for over three centuries. Um, even when it was not economically feasible to do so, it, it did it. Um, and so this is a, was an egregious, prolonged immorality. Um, our, our brilliant, beautiful Constitution, our Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, all these beautiful uh, democratic documents were not enough to end slavery. And so the, the, one of the realities of the 60s was that morality is a bigger and more powerful force than democracy, than freedom. And, uh, than, and we would have to separate it out and address it separately and deal with it. Uh, I think the shift was signaled by the fact that the Kennedy brothers, uh, uh, both of whom were not very much interested in in civil rights uh, when Jack became president. Uh, very quickly after he did, and as the, as the civil rights movement continued to, to develop, they began to, uh, to talk about uh, this problem of race as a fundamentally moral problem, a problem that cast a moral light on American life. Um, this was a huge shift, and it transformed us uh, it transformed us forever. One of the things this fall did was it introduced into our, our political life, our cultural life, it introduced a new idea, an idea that had never been here before, never was a part of our thinking before, uh, but has been uh, extremely prominent in our thinking since the fall. And that idea is what I call characterological evil. One of the things the 60s, um, again, made, uh, brought to America was this idea that evil was endemic to the American character, that it was a permanent feature of that character. The truth and reality of American life and so you see, even to this very day, we still have this, uh, this idea of, um, of evil. And, and, it, and it is extremely, I think, extremely powerful. And that we, we overlook it still, uh, even though it controls, defines our politics and our, our relationship to each other as citizens and so forth. We don't know what quite to do with it. I think one point that the fall makes is that since the, uh, since the 1960s, America has functioned as a morally fallen nation. We have not functioned as a confident 
nation and no, we believe and no, and we were wonderful people. And so we, we now, a part of being an American now is accepting, living with, adapting to this uh, problem of, of uh, fallenness and, and what it causes. One of the new problems that came out of the fall was simply how to have moral legitimacy, the kind of legitimacy that you need to function. A society needs to do its business, a, a, a legitimacy that supports the, uh, the rule of law. How do you do that after a loss of innocence has been made clear in that society? Uh, I'll tell a quick little story. Uh, in the 1960s, I personally came very close to breaking faith with America, to feeling that, Amer that the American democracy was simply not legitimate, and that I, I did not owe it allegiance. I owed it resistance. Um, I remember the moment when this, this idea began to bloom in my mind. I was probably 16 or 17. I was walking down uh, Wabash Avenue in Chicago, my hometown. I don't know why I was there, but I was walking down. I noticed a man in front of me wearing a trench coat, um, sort of a happy guy and, and a little effeminate walk. And uh, as I sort of got up to him and I could see, look into his, uh, his face, I saw Jack Benny. Uh, and we were walking in front of the Palmer House, which is one of the sort of legendary hotels in, in Chicago, a, a marvelous place. But of course, at that point, it was off limits to people like myself. Um, so Jack Benny um, walks through the big revolving door at the front and uh, goes into this lobby with chandeliers and so forth. And without really thinking or, or meaning to make any sort of a statement, I just really wanted to know what that lobby looked like. It looked from outside fabulous. Uh, and so I started to walk toward the revolving door, fully intending just to revolve, peek, and then right back out. Uh, but as I approached the door, a doorman emerged from out of the shadows. He was black. Uh, he looked at me and he said, you know better. Um, and it was, uh, okay, I did. <laughs> uh, I had forgotten things, who I was, my place for a moment. And, well, it, it, this had happened many, many times. I grew up in segregation. I know very much like what it's like and, and uh, what, what this, the kinds of rebuffs are. But th at this point, the, what was new was, was the idea that I shouldn't take this. It's not good for me to take this. Um, I don't want to put up with what my father had to put up with. I'm not going to do it. Very, you know, 17-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, gets, you can get very hot uh, over these things. Um, then I remember not long after that, Muhammad Ali was at a news conference. This is when he had his trouble with the draft board and he was suspended for three years from boxing. And 
um, be, uh, because he wouldn't cooperate with the draft. And him standing there, a bank of reporters and photographers in front of him, and, and uh, um, they're ta asking him about fighting for his country and, and so forth. And he speaking uh, a little politically incorrectly, um, he said, I don't have anything against those little yellow people over there. They never did anything to me. And he pointed his finger at the reporters and said, you did. You're who I need to fight. Um, well, boy, that kind of thing had a, a, uh, an overwhelming uh, effect. And so it's such, it's such a simple logic. No, you shouldn't put up with this. And to do so would be self-hating would be to be your own worst to collaborate with what the suppression was. And all this was coming from America, country you're supposed to identify with. Um, well, at that point, I came uh, a little close to not. And then I, I've written a little bit about what uh, followed then uh, and how I ultimately found my way back. But at, at a moment, for a while there, it was, it was a push and pull. Uh, this, I think, is what was behind the, the counterculture. Many, many, many young people broke faith with America in the 60s, um, which again emphasized um, our fallenness and our lack of moral authority and our lack of moral legitimacy uh, as, a, as a society. And so I think one of the things that came out of this fall was it triggered a, a frantic scramble for moral authority. Enough moral authority to do business, to function as a, a society. Um, stunning example of this last week, Starbucks. Um, <laughs> two blacks are arrested and within hours, the, head, the CEO of Starbucks is saying, we're going to close 8,000 stores for a day and I guess subject all the employees to some sort of diversity propaganda of one kind or another. Um, why are you doing that? Why don't, even, even if the, what you did was, was wrong, why don't you just admit, it? well, this was a profound mistake, we deeply regret it, and move on? It's not enough, people, people whispered to get back your moral authority, to clean up your, your brand. You have to do, there has to be big numbers involved. 8,000, that's good. Uh, and now you can then say, you can move forward and open for business tomorrow morning and, and do okay. Well, one institution after another institution in America has been struggling with this problem. Um, for decades now, uh, the, the finding the moral authority uh, simply to, to move ahead. Um, we have in America life before the fall and life after the fall. I'll give you a, a quick example. When I was uh, in the seventh grade, for reasons I won't bore you with, I ended up as the only black kid in my class in, in the school that I went, junior high school that I went to. And um, 
I had a teacher named Mrs. Bergeson who was a, 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 our English teacher, our homeroom teacher, and she made us diagram sentences all day, every day. We just diagrammed sentences, and we got very, very good at diagramming sentences. Um, and she was unapologetic. She was straight ahead. And you actually got to like it after a while, so if, you could, if you could figure it out. Um, and I learned. And by the time I got to high school, I wrote uh, papers that were at least grammatically correct uh, and, and so forth. I had a, some idea. All of us did how to do it. Um, Ten years later, I was a senior in college. It's 1968, the spring. Martin Luther King got assassinated. I was the president of the Black Student Union. What are we going to do? Well, we meet all night, uh, and we come up with a list of demands. The next day, we march into the administration building, up the stairs to the president's office, and barge right in the door. And I was the leader, and while I was leading it, I had the sort of uh, cosmic disdain to smoke a cigarette. My ashes tumbling on the, on the ground. This, was, this is what we thought of, of America's authority at, uh, at that time. We, we were, had to make a display of disrespect. Um, we thought, I knew him. He was a stern man. He, he was in many ways like Mrs. Bergeson had been. But, but uh, he was after the fall. This was in 1968. He, he, I read the demands out. He asked me to give them to him. I did. He looked at it and he said, I think we can pretty much do everything on this list. What was on the list was, was for the most part, sheer junk that we had come up with uh, late at night. Uh, and <laughs> we had no idea. Uh, we wanted a house of, of just for, for black students. We wanted all these kids. I, irony is that these demands are still the ones that, that you hear today. Um, but um, Dr. McCabe capitulated. Um, he did not have the moral authority to resist these crazy students with this crazy list of demands. He should have said, uh, there's a, a process you have to go through to see the president. Uh, I ask you to leave my office or I will call the authorities and, uh, and taken that sort of a stance for it. But he didn't, he, he rolled right over uh, and he, he suspended his principles uh, and in, in order to win the moral authority to restore legitimacy to his college. So he bent the standards, lowered the standards for us in order to get the moral authority to have for, his, for his college. Well, who paid the price there? We did. In 50 years since that happened, black students today have the lowest grade point average and the highest dropout rate of any group, student group in America. Um, in the 1950s, black students came into universities, white universities, with slightly lower grade point averages than white students and graduated four years later with slightly, with slightly higher grade point average than white students. No affirmative action, 
Nobody cared about their culture. Nobody cared about their, their sensitivities, their need for affinity, the microaggressions they might suffer. None of that. They, they just got to work uh, and appreciated the opportunity to do better. Well, Dr. McCabe killed all that off. He said his, his, his meaning was keep, keep uh, pressuring me, and, and uh, in order to get more authority, I'll do almost anything. How much time do I have? I'm, I'm, I got 15. Okay, let me. I'll cut a little bit. Um, well, McCabe was a precursor. Uh, like him, America learned how to survive with a deficit of moral authority, and the way to survive was essentially capitulation. And we have done that ever since. Um, progressively, America moved into what might be called an era of optics. Um, the impulse to visibly show our innocence of America's old evils like racism and sexism and so forth. Harvard University um, has a, an unwritten sort of quota by which uh, eight to nine percent of every single freshman class entering Harvard University has to be black. If they did not bend the standards, lower the standards, capitulate to mediocrity, and they admitted only by merit, only 1% of every Harvard entering class would be black. Um, and so Harvard then, and they obviously are not alone, every other Ivy League school does, uh, does exactly the, the, the same thing. Harvard wants to create, they want, when you come to their campus, when you hear about it, they want you to see eight to nine percent black faces in this extremely selective uh, elite American university. They want an optic. They want the look of innocence. And they, they engineer socially the students uh, in order to achieve this optic. Um, as I say, affirmative action is nothing more really than the methodology of optics, the, the rationalizations by which you play around with standards, you capitulate, you, you bend them, and you end up invariably always bending them for precisely the people who need development, who need to live up to those standards in order to be co competitive in American life. So it is a total exploitation of precisely the people you're claiming that you want to help. Liberalism, in that sense, is the new racism. It is a far worse enemy of minorities today than the old-fashioned, I don't like your color, racism. The fall also gave us a new political landscape. After the fall, American liberalism made an ingenious move. As conservatives looked on flat-footed, liberalism rushed in and took propriety over America's redemption from its old evils like racism. Liberalism would redeem the wretched past. Liberals would be America's saviors. 
here in this alignment with the good was real political power. Since the fall, America's moral legitimacy has been in the hands of liberals, not conservatives. And liberals don't improve our economy or fix our schools or, or deal with our infrastructure. They redeem us. Hillary would redeem us from our deplorableness. Our connection to old American evils. Um, I think it's a very healthy sign for our culture that uh, she was defeated. It, it suggests that modern liberalism may be a bit exhausted. Uh, and uh, on the wane at this point, we can only hope. There are two fundamental problems with liberalism that ultimately favor conservatives. The first is simply that liberalism absolutely always will fail. Already has and will continue wherever it is implemented. It will continue to fail. Uh, certainly minorities are the, the most painful example. Blacks are below whites today at a wider margin than, than back in the 50s, and they're behind in almost every single socioeconomic uh, measure. Black women get divorced at twice the rate of white women and get married at half the rate. 75% um, of all black children are born out of wedlock. How do you overcome problems like that? Um, how do, but yet we have this focus on optics where we're making our institutions look innocent of racism, innocent of the past, uh, yet everything they do facilitates it. Liberalism, second thing that is, uh, I think helps conservatives in the long run is that liberalism always deals in dreams. It steals moral authority and power through dreams of innocence. Um, liberalism is not a political ideology. It is an identity of innocence. I'm a liberal. I'm a good person. I'm a good, decent human being. If you're a conservative, you're probably, uh, you're definitely not good, but you're, <laughs> and you're probably hiding it and so you're so forth. You are in league with the old evil with that characterological evil. Uh, and that's what you really want. And when you want to make America great again, it's because you want to go back to that evil and you want to use it. Um, whereas liberals, without any accountability for all their failure, unrelenting failure, uh, they, are, they have an identity, they think of themselves as the innocent people because they capitulate to pretty much anything. They do, when the race problem comes up, they just use their entire full imagination to find a way to capitulate to lower standards. They find a way to then oppress and stigmatize the people that they claim that they're, that they're helping. But liberalism is an entirely selfish uh, identity. And it, it's, it does, in fact, work. Uh, and they do have a, they escape the problem uh, by claiming to be innocent. Um, 
Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. Here's a city that in 2016, in five neighborhoods on the south side, one very close to the one I grew up in, um, 762 people shot dead in one year. 4,000, thousand people shot in one year. You're talking about shootings now per hour. Uh, where, what combat zone in the world is that bad? Um, what does the mayor of Chicago do? The mayor of Chicago um, says what he wants is sanctuary cities. This is liberalism, and it's, I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> it, this is liberalism, and it's, uh, it's clearest. Sanctuary cities gives you this, this sort of imagery of innocence. I'm such a great person. I'm, I'm so caring and so empathetic to, uh, to my fellow human beings that I'm willing, not, no walls, that, let's see, we can open the borders. Um, we, can, uh, we can, again, capitulate, lower the standards, uh, weaken the society, but we'll be good, we'll be innocent. And we'll be free of all of that. Well, I think all this opens the way for contemporary liberalism. I'll cut this list short because I think we're close to being. Okay. All right. I was going to say quickly what I think conservatism ought to do. I'll just, I'll give you just a quick few points, a couple points here. Um, I think we have to never offer magic. Uh, we, should, we should resist capitulation, name it for what it is. Um, but I think um, one of the most important things is I think conservatives, in a sense, know what to do. And, and uh, uh, it's just difficult to do it because if you, if you don't bend standards now, then you are, of course, racist and oppressive. You're oppressing if you, if, uh, people if you use standards that they can't meet. So rather than ask them to meet the standards, you lower the standards, uh, thereby sealing in their weakness for yet another generation. Um, I think that the, the biggest failure that, that I think is important to remember in, for, for, in, for conservatives is that we need to go directly into minority communities and we need to do this constantly and we need to hold big events there in their most prominent institutions and develop a profile in those communities and make and show and make the argument of how the values of conservatism the principles and so forth are the only way out of the problems only way ahead for the problems that they um, that they suffer from Conservatives have a huge, uh, can have a huge impact uh, and, and really begin to turn our, our society around if they'll only, they'll only use it and be exactly who they are. Uh, and and uh, yes, we all apologize for the past, but the past is the past. And uh, we now have to, uh, to be prepared for the future. I'll stop there. See if there's some questions. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, 
please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.